we stand in the presence of God's Word. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another. Seeing that he answered them well, he asked, Which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, The first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and besides him there is no other. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, this is much more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that, he answered wisely. He said to them, You are not far from the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Mark begins this story with three participles. You don't see that in your translation because there's scholars who translated for you are struggling for readability. But in fact, there are three participles right here at the beginning of this story. Having come, having heard, having seen, a scribe stepped up to him and asked, which is the greatest commandment of all? In 1,200 years, ten commandments had become more than 600. Out of more than 600 commandments, which is the number one commandment? I have four things to say. Jesus said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. He quotes directly from the scroll of Deuteronomy. Jewish scholars, Christian scholars, are convinced that Deuteronomy was written 500 years after the time of Moses. In 721, when Josiah was king of the two southern tribes, the ten northern tribes having been decimated, slaughtered, raped, plundered, and replaced by the Assyrians, the temple priest approached the king one morning and said, We were cleaning out some old closets at the temple last night, and guess what? We found a fifth scroll of Moses. Both Jewish and Christian scholars are convinced the ink was still wet when they handed it over to the king. But they were convinced that if they could persuade him to believe that Moses had written these words, he would pay close attention and it would lead him and the people to meaningful reform so that the fate that had just befallen the ten northern tribes would not befall the two in the south. Well, they were right. He said, read the scroll to me. And they read it to him. And when he heard, heard it, he tore his robe, which in biblical times meant he was completely undone by this whole message he was hearing. He tore his robe and repented and led the people in meaningful reform. So the Egyptians marched up from the south and killed him at a place called Megiddo. And the reform ended, and 150 years later, the southern tribes were defeated as the northern ones had been before them. Jesus reaches right into that scroll and quotes the verse that is known to Jews as the Shema. 
every observant Jew was supposed to say the Shema three times every day. It was to be affixed to the doorpost of their houses so that when they went out and when they came in, they would see the Shema and remember. If you should go to Jerusalem and stay in a hotel, even those owned by big American chains, the Jerusalem Hilton, the Hyatt Regency, you start to put your key into the door of your room, you will see a little tiny metal tube screwed into the facing. If you were to remove it, you would find inside a tiny little rolled up scroll, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, He is one. You must have no other God but Him. You must love Him with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. At least three times a day, say the Shema. The Shema says to Israel in Hebrew, the God of the burning bush, the Eye Asher Eye, your Elohim is one. Just one. He is not willing to be one of many. He must be one. In New York, there's a new play this season called Lombardi. I read a review in the Wall Street Journal. Terry Teachout is a reviewer for the Wall Street Journal. He said, I don't know anything at all about football, but when I heard that this play was coming to New York City, I wondered who will go see a play about a football coach who died 40 years ago. But when I got there, the theater was filled. And though I knew nothing about football and nothing about Vincente Lombardi, I found myself engaged the whole evening. An Italian actor who played the male, the father, in The Wonder Years, Daniel Lauria, plays Lombardi on stage. Those of us who remember Vince Lombardi remember that he was hired to coach the Green Bay Packer football team. Have you ever been to Green Bay, Wisconsin? Green Bay, Wisconsin is not a New York City. It is not Chicago. It is not Los Angeles. It is not even Houston or Dallas. It's not even as big as Tulsa. Think Bartlesville. Think Enid. Think Muskogee. Vince Lombardi was hired to go into that small a community and try to defeat teams from all those huge cities, and he did it. When Vincent Lombardi got there, he realized this was his one chance of a lifetime to do what he felt he'd been sent to do, coach a winning football team. An Italian-American, a graduate of Jesuit schools, he had learned discipline, and he came with hands full of discipline to Green Bay. This reviewer said... The role is that of a George C. Scott's General Patton. Lombardi arrived in Green Bay stomping and shouting and screaming, fingers in people's faces, and the guys who played for him said they would have died for him in a minute. He demanded everything. Everything. It was Lombardi's way, the highway. You do it Lombardi's way or you get out. And the quicker the better for you, because he's going to make life miserable. He said, we will not have a hundred plays. We will not have two hundred plays. Vince Lombardi did not need a big card like many of the coaches do now, color-coded to know what to call on any given occasion. 
His team only had 35 plays. Everybody knew what they were going to run. They just ran them better than anybody else. Line up. Let our guys run against your guys. We'll see who's got the better team. His was better. It became the best in the world. Vince Lombardi said, this is the time. It'll be my way or none. My way or none. How much bigger the God who appeared to Moses in a burning bush. Send him back to Egypt. Visited plague upon plague upon the Egyptians until the Pharaoh let them go free. Parted the waters of the Sea of Reeds so that they could escape the oncoming uh, Egyptians. Gave Moses the Ten Commandments. That one must be one and no other but him for you. No other. Number two, you shall love this one with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. If you do, sometimes things will go well for you and sometimes things will not go well for you. Eighteen months ago, Gail and I had decided we would use a major part of our vacation to see six more concentration camps, all six of these in Germany. We had seen the three best preserved ones in Poland, Majdanek, Birkenau, Auschwitz. So we flew into Berlin. We had been there when it was still a divided city, when you still had to go through Checkpoint Charlie to move from east to west. We had been back once before, after it was a reunited city, and now we were there a third time. It's really one of the great cities of the world again. After we had spent a couple of days in Berlin looking around, we took the train out to Sachsenhausen. We got off the train. It was a deserted-looking place. No taxis, no buses. We had a tiny little map. We started walking. We walked three miles. There it was. We stood in the cell where Dr. Martin Niemuller was confined in solitary confinement. We went cell by cell by cell. More than half a day. Caught the train back to Berlin. Next morning... We took a train out to Ravensbrück, where women were confined, where thousands and thousands of Jewish women died. Went back to Berlin. The next day we took the train west to Sela. Sela. We wanted to go to Bergen-Belsen. Just a couple of years before, we had been in Amsterdam again. We had gone to the apartment where Anne Frank and her family were hidden for more than three years, only to be betrayed, arrested, and sent to Bergen-Belsen. Anne Frank died there. Her sister died there. Gail and I had been in Harlem in Amsterdam, where Corey Tinboom and her family had shielded Jews, had hidden them, had helped them get to safe havens, only to be betrayed, and the Ten Boom family all sent to concentration camp, Bergen-Belsen. Corey survived. Her sister did not. But we didn't know about Lily Friedman. Lily Friedman was a Czechoslovakian, a good, devout, observant Jewish family. Her mother and father had five children, two sons, three daughters. Her father was an educator in Czechoslovakia. The Nazis came. All seven of them were arrested. They were taken by train to Birkenau. 
If you've seen Schindler's List, then you remember how the train actually pulls right into the middle of the Birkenau concentration camp, and there's an officer standing there, motioning right, left, right, and left on the same Judenrampa, the ramp of the Jews. If you motion in one direction, you go immediately to be gassed and burned. If you were motioned in the other direction, as long as you could stay healthy and work, you might be kept alive for 30, 60 more days. In many occasions, it was the women and the girls who were sent immediately to their death. In this case, it was just the opposite. The officer waved Lily's father and both brothers, where they were taken instantly to be gassed and burned, and motioned her mother and her two sisters and Lily to work. Their mother did die. She got sick and died. But the three girls survived Auschwitz and Birkenau. And then finally, with the Allied forces getting closer and closer, when those who survived to that point could not be gassed and burned fast enough, and they were force-marched. Lily and her two sisters are part of that group that were force-marched all the way, more than 200 miles in snow in the wintertime to Bergen-Belsen. Well, the war did finally end, and the camps were liberated. So many of the Jews were too ill to be moved at that point, and so Bergen-Belsen became a place for displaced persons. The Jews knew that so many of them had been decimated, that they needed to marry and make new Jewish babies, or they would cease to exist as a separate people. And Lily met a young Jewish man named Ludwig, and they decided within a few weeks they wanted to be married. But Lily said to Ludwig, I've always wanted to be married in a white gown. And he said, where am I going to get a white gown in this camp? She said, I don't know. That's a good job for you to work on. And a few days later, a German pilot who had flown in the Luftwaffe came walking through the camp with his parachute under his arm saying, would anybody trade me something to eat for this? Ludwig had two packages of cigarettes. The officer said he'd take it, took the cigarettes, gave up the parachute. A Jewish seamstress named Miriam said, let me see what I can do about a wedding dress. And she spent the next two weeks making one out of the parachute. And then 26 people walked through knee-deep snow 15 miles from the camp to Sela for Lily and Ludwig to be married in the synagogue in Sela. The next few months, 17 brides wore the gown made from a parachute. 17. In 1948, they were finally allowed to come to the United States of America. And Lily kept her gown all these years. It's now at the Holocaust Museum in Washington. It's in a very special case with just the right air inside it and so on. They say it'll probably last 500 years at least. If you love Yahweh, your Elohim, with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength, things may go well with you or they may go very badly for you for a time and hopefully better again. Number three. The second one is sort of like the first. And Jesus this time turns to a different scroll, that of Leviticus things priestly, and says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In the Sermon on the Mount, he had said a similar thing as 
you would that others do to you, do you even so to them. Familiar with the name David Beckman? He's head of an organization called Bread of the World. Now, I know there are a lot of these organizations, and some of them are shams, but some of them do really wonderful work, and Bread of the World is one of those that does really wonderful work. It's a Lutheran organization, and David Beckman is a Lutheran pastor. He grew up on the plains of Nebraska and now heads this worldwide organization. Recently, he was asked to speak to the National Press Club in Washington. And David Beckman said, Here we are, close to another election. And I don't hear anybody talking about ridding the United States of poverty. Do you realize, he said, that there are almost 15% of the people in America, in the United States of America, who live below the poverty level? that every night we have more than a million children in the United States of America who go to bed hungry and wake up the next morning hungry. It's easier, he said, to make a significant difference in a place like Africa. There are countries there where if a man or woman has a job, that person makes $2 a day. So a gift of $10 can make a big difference. In this country, $10 doesn't go very far. just doesn't. But we must not quit, he said. In the last 40 years, he said, no candidate running for president has had the elimination of poverty in our country as one of his or her top three items of concern. Not one in 40 years. Then he said to these journalists, but if you ever want to get close to God, do what's right by the poor and you'll discover he's really close. Number four. Wow, the scribe said. I agree with you. I think you've got it. I believe that these two commandments, the scribe said, are more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Not far. But grace holds the, the, the doorknob, if you would, to this kingdom. The grace of God. Extended to you, you have to turn the knob, open the door, let God come in. God, whom we've come to know best in Jesus Christ, let that one come in. It's by grace Dr. Fred Craddock was in our city again just a couple of weeks ago. Phillips Theological Seminary is trying to raise money to endow a chair in honor of Dr. Craddock. We Methodists lured him away from Phillips Theological Seminary in Enid, Oklahoma, many years ago now to our Methodist Seminary in Atlanta, Georgia. And he taught there until his retirement. First time I ever heard Fred Craddock, he came from Enid, Oklahoma. I'd never heard of him. I'd never heard of Enid. I'd never heard of Phillips. But I never forgot after I heard him. He said, I've always loved to preach on the prodigal son. Isn't that a great story, he said? Jesus told us about a young man who came to his father and said, How long before you die? I want my inheritance now. And the father risked the stability and well-being of the family by giving it to him that day. And the young man went away and wasted it all, ended up in a Gentile hog pen, eating slop with the hogs. 
and said, life's got to be better than this. I know I could never be a son again. I've squandered everything that sonship meant. But those who serve at my father's place are treated better than this. Maybe he would let me be a servant. And he started home. The father saw him coming, ran down to meet him. Dr. Brandon Scott reminded us that Israel is in Asia, not in Europe. And that Asian women of long ago ran to meet wayward children, not fathers. Fathers maintained their dignity. Fathers didn't run and throw themselves on their son's neck and kiss them. Mothers did that. God is like an Asian mother who runs down the road and throws her arms around her son and kisses him on the neck and says, you have no shoes, bring shoes. Or a father who takes his signet ring off the finger and puts it on this wayward son's hand and says, kill the fatted calf. We've got to have a party. Fred Craddock said, I love preaching that story. And then in our neighborhood in Enid, Oklahoma, he said, a couple got a divorce. They had three teenage daughters, and the mother and father were more interested in that point at fighting each other, and they forgot about the three daughters. And they just went wild, he said. I mean, any motorcycle that roared through the neighborhood, they jumped on the back end of it. And then we saw evidence they were consuming and abusing alcohol and then drugs and then shoplifting. And a judge in Enid sent the oldest one, who was just 15, to a reform school. Well, we had a lot to talk about in the neighborhood. Boy, that Kathy, she was a loser, wasn't she? She was a loser. And one of them said, I heard she was pregnant. No, yeah, I heard she was. And a few months later, a word came to the neighborhood. You know what? She had a baby down there in that reform school. She was pregnant. She's had a baby. What'd she do with it? I don't know. More months passed and the whispering in the neighborhood. I heard Kathy's being discharged. No, yes. Did she give that baby up for adoption? I don't know. Is she bringing that baby back here? I don't know. But we all heard she was being released the next Saturday morning. So we all decided we needed to mow our yards. And all of us were out there mowing our yards, mowing our yards, waiting. And a car pulled up. Five people got out. Not one of them was Kathy. They all went in the house. Another car pulled up and parked in the street. Four or five people got out. Kathy wasn't one of them. They all went in the house. Another car, another car. Soon they filled the whole street. We're all just mowing and mowing and re-mowing, waiting to see what happens next. And the car pulled up, and it was Kathy. And she had that baby in her arms. And everybody in the house ran out and threw their arms around her and took that baby and passed it from person to person to person. Suddenly all of us got through mowing, put up our lawnmowers, and went in the house. I was so afraid somebody would say, Hey, Fred, aren't you coming to the party? I tell you, it's easier to preach that story than it is to go to the party.